Hebrews 5, if you are not there already. Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 10. Last week we saw Jesus, a great high priest. This week we see Jesus, a better high priest. A better high priest. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we just sang that song, as we come to that chorus and our hearts proclaim, Tis the Lord, the King of glory. Heavenly Father, this morning our hearts do rejoice in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was the Son of God who took on flesh, who has sympathy with us because the things that he has suffered, yet without sin, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again victorious, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he pleads for us, tis the Lord, O glorious story. We rejoice in that. We have hope in that this morning. And Heavenly Father, we pray that even as we turn our attention to this passage, that we would find comfort in our great high priest, and that your name would be lifted high. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's interesting that Todd would, start, would, would use that story of um, Katie getting tires. Because I was thinking of starting with something similar. When, uh, whenever you find yourself in an automotive store getting work done on your car for whatever reason, many times there is a display off to the side that has several different kinds of tires. And with those different kinds of tires, it gives you different specs. This tire is good on snow. This tire is good in the summer. This is why. This is this thick. This is this kind of tread. I don't know a lot about tires, and so that is helpful to me to see them side by side, compared and contrasted. I recently discovered that Amazon does something similar on their website. If, it's, if you're like me, it's that time of year where you're just starting to think about getting Christmas gifts for people. I probably should learn that I should start this earlier, but it doesn't typically happen. And as you're shopping, if you go to Amazon and you scroll down, there's this very helpful little tool about partway down the screen where it'll take the, the item that you're looking at and it will compare it with several other items, very similar items. Some are more expensive, some are less expensive. And, and with the more expensive, this is what you gain. And with the less expensive, this is what you lose. It puts them side by side and it compares them. And you can see, you yourself can compare and contrast. I found that to be a very helpful tool. And I start there this morning because we come, as we come to this passage in Hebrews 5, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He takes two things and he sits them side by side so that you can compare them. I think it's important for us as we come to this passage to remember the larger context of the book of Hebrews. Who is it that he's writing to? He's writing to Jewish believers who are tempted in the, the context of the day that they live in the, the persecution against this new 
thing called the church, they are tempted to run back to the law. They are tempted to run back to the the comfort of the priesthood, of the temple. They're tempted to run back to that. And yet here, the author of Hebrews will take that system, that old high priesthood, and he'll set it side by side with Jesus Christ, our new high priest. And he will compare and he will contrast. And so as we work our way through this, we'll see the old office of high priest in the first four verses and the new office of high priest in verses 5 to 10. And as we work our way through this, I would encourage you to note how he touches on the exact same things. We'll see as we work our way through here the authority of the old high priest. He was appointed by God. We'll see his compassion. He understands the weaknesses of, his represent, of those he represents. And yet we'll also see his weakness. He's a sinner. And then the author will move his attention to Jesus. And we'll see his authority. He too was appointed by God. We'll see his compassion. He too understands the weaknesses of those he represents. But instead of his weakness, we'll see his superiority. He has been perfected and called by God to be our king priest. And so this morning we will compare and contrast. And we will come to the conclusion that Jesus is better. As we start this morning in Hebrews 5.1, we see the old office of high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Every high priest, every high priest who is chosen, is chosen. This is not something that a man takes unto himself. In fact, if you work down to verse 4, verse 4 complements verse 1. Verse 1 just kind of leaves it open-ended. They are taken from among men. They are appointed. But who is it that does this appointing? Well, verse 4 answers that question. No man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God. It is God who has set up this high priesthood, and it is God who calls this high priest. No one takes this to himself. As we work here in the beginning of chapter 5 into this idea of high priest, we were introduced to it last week at the end of chapter 4. And we're introduced to a subject here that will be more fully developed as we go forward into chapter 7, uh, really through chapter 10. And here we're introduced to it, this comparison. And he starts with this fact that every high priest is chosen. They are appointed for men. You can go back and look in the Old Testament at Aaron and his lineage as they were called by God, Exodus 28, uh, 1, uh, all the way through Exodus 29. They were called. They were set aside. There were specific things that they had to do because God had chosen them for this. It is not that Aaron one day stood up and said, Hey, you know, Moses, I, you know, I, we're kind of related I, I, I get you. I understand you. Let me be the high priest. It is not Aaron who volunteered. It is God who chose. Aaron was picked and his lineage was picked, called by God. And yet notice what it is that this high priest does. He's appointed for men in things pertaining to God. He is set aside by God for God. 
What is it that he does? That he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sins. If you really want to jump into this and study and understand these gifts and sacrifices, you could read Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 5. It gets very detailed on all these different sacrifices. It explains several different kinds, including burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Some of these offerings are free will offerings. They're out of the abundance, the thanksgiving of the heart as as one comes and just, "I, I want to give. I want to worship in this way. I want to give of my grain. Some of them are necessary on behalf of sin, seeking atonement. I know that I am a sinner. And I know that blood must be shed to cover my sin. It is the high priest who offers these gifts and sacrifices, who brings them before the Lord, for the people. And yet notice what benefit this is. His authority comes from God himself. He has been appointed. He's been appointed in things pertaining to God, to represent the people before God and God before the people, to offer sacrifices and gifts. And yet he has compassion. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Since he himself is also subject to weakness. This high priest is not to be marked by harshness or impatience. That has no place in the priesthood. Because God is not harsh. Because God is not impatient. As these people come to the high priest, as they bring their gifts and their sacrifices and their offerings, he's not to say, oh, again, Ron, you just came yesterday. Tim, this is the exact same offering that you gave two days ago. Get it together. No. He's to be patient. He is understanding. He has compassion. Why? Because he himself offers the same sacrifices for himself. He knows in his heart that I am a sinner. That I am undeserving. This offering that I'm offering for their sin, I'm offering for my sin. He is subject to weakness. In fact, that's what verse 3 goes on to say. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, also for himself, to offer sacrifice for sins. He is a sinner too. And that's his weakness. What's interesting here is that his strength is also his weakness. He has compassion, but that compassion comes because he too is a sinner. Because he understands, because he has walked that road, because he knows their weakness and their failings. And that is his weakness. He is not a perfect high priest, because he too falls short, because he too must offer sacrifices for his sins.
A quote that I read last week as we worked our way through the first, or through Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this. What we need is not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. And these first four verses of Hebrews 5, it comes abundantly clear that this high priesthood, though appointed by God, this is not the ultimate answer. This is not the perfect high priest. Yes, they represent us before God. Yes, this is set up by God. Yes, this is good. But there has to be something more. There has to be something better because these men are not saviors. They are sinners like us. Remembering the context of this book, that is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to get these people to understand. Don't run back to this system. Look at the failings of these high priests. Look at the weakness of the law. And now turn and look at Jesus Christ, the new office of high priest. Notice verse 5, so also, in the same way, the point that he makes in these first few verses, verses 5 to 6, is that Jesus Christ, just like the high priest in the Old Testament, under the law is appointed by God, so Jesus Christ has been sent by God. So Jesus Christ was divinely appointed by God. So also, Christ did not glorify himself. To become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten to you. He also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The larger point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that Jesus has also been appointed. Jesus has also been sent by God for a specific purpose. He's appointed by the Father. Because we know that in these two passages that are quoted, Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4, that it is God the Father who is speaking. In Psalm 2-7, he says to the Son, who we now know is Jesus Christ, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. The focus in Psalm 2 is not on Jesus as high priest, but on Messiah, Jesus, as king. It's almost striking. It's the same focus in Psalm 110, the second passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, it comes in the context of a song, psalm that is talking about this coming savior as king. It's almost kind of striking to us because we expect at this point some kind of a passage talking about Jesus as high priest. But he focuses on Jesus as king. And here we're introduced with the slightest reference to a truth that will be more fully developed, even by the end of this passage, but much more in chapter 7 and following. And it will go on to actually be a major point made by the author of Hebrews. That Jesus is both high priest and king. In this first passage, Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It focuses on his unique relation to the Father. He has a relationship to the Father that no one else has. He's already made this point to show, that, to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels. 
And now he's using the same point to prove that Jesus is greater than Aaron and the priesthood. His unique relationship to the Father that no one else has. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the same one who says you are my son, today I have begotten you, also says you who I have begotten, who is my son, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. Again, this is Psalm 110.4. We read it earlier. It's another psalm that focuses on Jesus as God's king. And yet in the midst of this psalm, talking about this, the rule of this king who God has sent, you have this reference to him as high priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? According to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, you might remember the story. It's in Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And he comes out as um, uh, Abraham is returning after fighting the, the kings of this area. And as he comes back, this king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, comes out. And he comes and he provides a meal for Abraham and for his followers, those who are with him. And Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. In fact, this is a point that will be much more fleshed out moving forward. But the point here, according to the order of Melchizedek, and we'll see that going forward, even into verse 10. This Melchizedek plays a, plays a prominent role in the Old Testament, and yet it's a very small role. He's only mentioned in Genesis 14 and then again in Psalm 110. And then we see him here in Hebrews. But this order of Melchizedek, I don't believe that it means that there is a traceable line of priests from Melchizedek to Christ, that you could look back and see, oh, there's this priest and this priest and this priest and this priest. But the idea, as we'll see here, developed and even more into chapter 7 and following, is that Jesus Christ, as foretold in Psalm 110, is a priest in the same way as Melchizedek. In the same way that Melchizedek was a priest and a king. A unique one, serving God most high. So is Jesus Christ. The point is that Melchizedek is a smaller pointing forward to a greater. And we'll see that as we work our way through this passage. But here you see this same point in chapter five and verses five and six that the author of Hebrews starts with in verse one. A high priest appointed by God. Jesus Christ has been appointed by God. He has been called out, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and he's been appointed. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, as priest and king. His authority comes from God. Secondly, note his compassion. We touched on this last week as we worked our way through um, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, but note his compassion. Who, that is Jesus here, this one who has been chosen by God, 
Jesus in the days of his flesh, his incarnation, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. That line with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death is probably language that draws our mind, your minds to Gethsemane as Jesus is in the garden as he is crying out to the Lord as drops of blood are coming down. And he cries, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not your will, but mine. I think that is included in this. It's a very clear reference to it, but I think the author of Hebrews is getting at even more here. It's not just that moment. It is his entire life of suffering. It is every time that he wept over the state of the world. It is as he wept before Lazarus' tomb, as, he, as his disciples failed to grasp what he was saying time and time again in that struggle, the suffering of those around him as he wept over Jerusalem. It is his entire life of suffering. His entire life. And yet, note, throughout this, he was always dependent on the Father. He offered up prayers and supplications, and he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, right? Psalm 2-7, we already saw, you are my son. We know that Jesus Christ is the son of God, John 1. Yet, as a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The things which he suffered his entire life on earth. Now, there's a couple things for us to address in here. First, I want to go back to verse 7. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. What do we mean there? How can the author of Hebrews say that Jesus' prayer to be delivered from death was heard? Because we know that he died. But he didn't stay dead. He was delivered from death. The Father did hear his cry, and the Father did deliver him from death. He submits to the Father's will. He submits to death and God heard his cry and delivered Jesus from death on the third day when he rose victorious. Another thing that needs to be addressed here is in verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that there was a time when Jesus was not obedient? This is something he had to learn as he developed? No. Do not be obedient is to sin, and we know that Jesus uh, suffered and yet without sin. He never sinned. So it does not mean that there was a time when he was not obedient. Rather, what this is getting at is he learned or he experienced all that obedience entails from the perspective of human weakness. He learned obedience. He experienced obedience in the flesh through human weakness. 
It's one thing to be obedient in the courts of heaven when your will is lined up perfectly with the Father's will because you are God. But he experienced obedience when his flesh was fighting against that because he was fully man and yet he never sinned. And so he understands your struggle. He understands your weakness. He understands that struggle. And because he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected, again, not that he was ever imperfect, but when he was made to be a perfect priest because of his suffering. Because he's able to sympathize with us, he is then made a perfect high priest. Having been perfected as a high priest, he became the author of eternal salvation. Having been perfected. This goes back to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the end of Matthew 1. As the angel comes and talks to Mary and to Joseph, what is it that the angel says? He uses two names for Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, and you will name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from his sins. And that's the reality that we see here. He had to be Emmanuel, God with us, before he could be Jesus who will save his people from their sins. He had to have that sympathy, to understand that experience and having been perfected, he became Jesus who will save his people from his sins. The author of eternal salvation to all who obey. The idea of obedience here is obedience that is presupposed by faith. It's a point that the author of Hebrews has been making all the way through the book of Hebrews. That this obedience presupposes faith. You must act this way because you claim to believe. And those who believe that faith affects your actions. You will obey. He is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And again he returns to this idea. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. In case you've missed the point that the author of Hebrews is making, he just lays it out for you. Jesus was called by God to be your high priest and your king, according to the uh, order of Melchizedek. He not only has access to the Father, he has authority. He is high priest and king. And the author of Hebrews wants this to be clear in your minds. He wants to connect the dots. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He is that king who has been promised. And he is your high priest who has pleads for you before the Father. Who has also been promised. And the point that he is making here when you boil it all down. Is that in Jesus Christ you have a better priest from a better priesthood. And therefore you have a better hope. In Jesus Christ. Cling to that. Cling to that. 
My senior year of high school, we had a kind of senior retreat where we went away. There was a camp in the uh, mountains not too far away from us called the Wilds. And uh, what we'd do is we'd get away for a week. They'd take all the seniors in the high school and we'd go up to the Wilds and we'd spend a week there. And they'd bring a, a speaker in and the speaker would um, you know, challenge us all week long as you're coming to the end of high school, as you're transitioning to college, you know, really make your faith your own. Recognize this and, and, and grow in the Lord. And it was one of those things that everyone looked forward to each year. It was a great, it was a retreat. You're getting out of classes for a week. But it wasn't something that they forced you to go to. See, you, you had a choice. You could stay back in Greenville and go to class for a week. Or you could go to the wilds with all of your friends. You could play basketball. You could do the giant swing. You could go swimming. You could eat snacks. You could do all this fun stuff. You could sit under this great preaching and have a fun week. And when you put those two things next to each other, class for a week, or camp with all my friends from school for a week, there's a clear choice, is there not? This isn't one of those things where you have to sit down and make a list of pros and cons and, I, just, I don't know. I can't make up my mind. What should I do? It's an obvious choice. There is one that clearly stands out as better. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at this passage, as the author of Hebrews has taken the old high priesthood and the new high priesthood in Jesus Christ, and he has put them side by side, as you come to the end of this passage, there is an obvious choice. One has pros and cons, and one has just pros. Choose Jesus. See him. See who he is. See all that is yours in him. He is God's king. Prophesied and sent. And he is your high priest. He has access and he has authority. And he understands you. And he understands your weakness. And he pleads for you before the Father. Cling to him. See Jesus and find a better hope. I think sometimes as we come to passages like this, it almost seem more theological. We're talking about, you know, the high priest and Melchizedek and there's some of these big ideas that are hard to wrap our minds around. I mentioned this last week, but I think you, when you come to a passage like this, sometimes it can be hard to take that theological truth and to plug it into my life. What does this mean for me? What is the fact that Jesus is my high priest? That he is called by God? That he is a priest and a king? That he pleads for me? What does this mean for me? As, as I go from here, you know, we, we can sit here and we can say, Amen! That is, that is good news. That is great. But, but what does that mean for me as I go back to my life? It means this, brothers and sisters. It means that you have an advocate before the Father. It means that when you and your weakness fail again, this week, this afternoon, 
when you fall, when you give in to that sin, once again, all hope is not lost. It means that you have hope because you have a Savior who pleads for you, who understands, who gives you strength. You don't have to give in to that sin. In fact, maybe as you're here this morning, maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you're here and you're, you're buttoned up and you look good from the outside. But inside you are overwhelmed. Inside you are beat up. Inside you feel like you don't have any hope against that sin. It does so easily beset you. Why is it so easy? Maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's just the overwhelming pressures of life. Maybe it's just the circumstances in which you find yourself and you just feel weak and overwhelmed and overcome. And what hope do I have? Maybe you are questioning your faith. Maybe you feel like you are drowning in your sin. You feel trapped. You feel unworthy. Maybe you feel misunderstood or overlooked. And the truth that this passage has for you is a call to look to Jesus and find hope in the midst of all that. When your temptation feels too great, when the circumstances of your life just overwhelm you and you feel like you are drowning in grief or whatever it may be, look to Jesus and find hope. He understands. He is your perfect high priest, called by God, sent by the Father, who took on flesh, who walked on this earth with vehement cries and tears. He's been there. He understands, yet he conquered. And he gives you hope. You're not, you're not stuck to do this in your own strength. Run to the cross of Christ and find hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ to begin with. Maybe this whole idea of a, a high priest and a savior, maybe this is new to you. And all you need to understand is that you are a sinner separated by God. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. And yet the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came, that he died on the cross for your sins. What you deserve, he took. And he offers you life if you will just believe him. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you do. It's not about the fact that you were at church this morning. That doesn't matter. That is good. That doesn't matter as far as your salvation. What matters is that you place your faith in Christ alone. That you see his sacrifice and you see your sin and you recognize, I deserve punishment. I am a sinner, but Jesus died for me and I will accept and believe that. When you believe that, then you have a high priest who understands. You have a high priest who walks with you, who pleads for you. You have hope. Maybe you are a believer. And maybe you're just struggling. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's the circumstances of life. I don't know what it is. 
See your high priest and find hope. Be reminded of the hope that is yours in Christ.